Claire Taylor is an Elfield farming scholar who grew up in Scotland, where a lot of agriculture is pastoral and green and beautiful in exactly the way most people would picture what sustainable agriculture should look like. But as an ag communicator, how does she address the fact that true sustainability isn't always as aesthetically pleasing? You know, we can criticize and we can have this idea, but we've also got to remember that to have energy, to have food, we've got to produce also at scale and to have affordability and accessibility for all. So it can't always be this picturesque, fantastic example. Through her travels around the world as part of the Nuffield Farming Scholarship, she's chosen to research the topic of how to turn the tide on the anti-farming agenda. She wants to challenge assumptions, including her own. And now I've had a bit of a taste for traveling and I have many, many months still to come. And I realized that, you know, farmers around the world, we're all facing the same challenges around climate and nature and also delivering on food security. So I think for me, I would love to do something which stops the finger pointing around the world. So every time I get asked from now on about, isn't the UK farming great, but how about the feedlots in the US? I'm going to challenge it. Is there really an anti-farming agenda? And if so, how should those tides be turned? Nuffield Farming scholar Claire Taylor joins the Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, fellow ag nerd. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to sit down with the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors, or in today's case, communicators, shaping the future of the ag industry. Today's episode and every episode this quarter is brought to you by the Soy Checkoff. It takes more than hard work to move a commodity. It takes a strategic plan and farmer leaders like you to implement it. And that's your soy checkoff, whether it's finding new markets for oil and meal, investing in production research to help get more from every acre, working with the supply chain to impact your bottom line, having a sound plan delivers results. And you and your fellow soybean farmers are proving it through your soy checkoff. See all the ways your soy checkoff is moving soy forward for you at unitedsoybean.org. And be sure to stick around to the end of today's episode for a special spotlight segment with Ohio Farmer and United Soybean Board Vice Vice Chair Steve Reinhardt. Thank you once again to the Soy Checkoff for supporting agricultural innovation and the Future of Agriculture podcast. All right, now back to today's episode with Claire Taylor. Claire grew up on a small beef farm on the west coast of Scotland and went on to study politics and international relations at Edinburgh University. She is a passionate storyteller and writer with almost a decade of experience working with the BBC and the Scottish Farmer, first as a reporter and later as political editor. Claire and I discuss her current pursuit, which is to travel the world in order to understand what she calls the anti-farming agenda and to learn what it means to have productive and honest conversations about the current state and the future state of farming. First, though, I asked her to explain what this Nuffield Farming Scholarship is and where her travels are taking her. So a Nuffield Farming Scholarship, there'll be Nuffield farmers in the United States as well and globally. And it's a, it's a network of individuals who every year there's a select number of us that receive this scholarship. And it can be to research a given topic that's looking at the future of agriculture within 
different sectors, different ideas. It could be communications. It could be genetic editing. It could be carbon labeling. So, you know, it's really a breadth of topics. And the idea is that you go out around the world and you discover different farming systems, individuals and organizations, gather ideas and bring them back to your country and share them to really progress the, the sector forward. And talk about your your focus. As I understand it, it is about you know understanding the anti-farming agenda and turning the tide, I, I, I think is actually how you phrase it, turning the tide on the anti-farming agenda. Can you maybe t- talk about what led to you wanting to explore that topic? Well, for many years as a journalist, and some of that was obviously covering Brexit, some of that has been covering this real appetite and agenda around net zero, around addressing climate change and nature loss. And I I very much witnessed that farming was being closely scrutinized, which it should be. I think all sectors have to be scrutinized for that. But um, this was interpreted by a lot of farmers as very much an anti-farming agenda. And I was constantly being asked to give talks on um, how the media was influencing the anti-farming agenda. And there was just this conversation swirling around farming circles, non-farming circles. And it always been something I really wanted to explore further because I'm really passionate about the farming narrative, how it's playing out around the world. And it's something I'd really like to look at moving forward because farming offers so many solutions to some of the challenges I've just mentioned around climate and nature loss. But um, having a positive conversation, engagement and narrative around farming is only going to enable it to be able to answer answer some of those challenges. So I really wanted to travel around the world and find places where there's maybe been a breakdown in relationship with farmers and different stakeholders and in other places where it's particularly strong and to look at how can we be more collaborative and unified and building a more positive farming narrative. And if I take it back to the UK, there's a lot of division within our own farming circles here, whether it's there's different types of agriculture evolving in the regenerative agriculture space, organic, and there, there's so many different labels. There's quite a few divides that are opening up and farmers themselves have been quite divided. So I'm hoping through my topic to look at ways to bridge the divide, step outside the silos and really just better understand how to do a more unified message to take farming forward because really if we keep arguing amongst ourselves we're not really going to put farming on its best foot forward to really be able to answer and deliver for some of these challenges right right and and i i've been following along with your travels on twitter and if i if i've got this right you've been to uh of course the uk so england and scotland but also japan australia indonesia new zealand and canada is that right yeah, that's right. Did you say Japan, Tim? I did. I, don't, you did. I did. In fact, <laughs> look at me. I'm getting lost. <laughs> I think you were in Japan when I first reached out to you because I, I that that's like my dream is like I've been to Japan once, loved it, but going back and actually studying agriculture there because I think it's so different from everything I'm used to here in the U.S. But that uh, that's a little bit beside the point. I know you're you still have more traveling yet to do, but that's a lot of countries. So with that context in mind, trying to understand the breakdowns between agriculture and, and the public. Um, have you been able to kind of observe any themes or common threads along those lines in the, in the travels you've done so far? So what I'll explain really quickly is that the travel I've done so far actually wasn't specific to my personal topic. It was actually part of a like a communications engagement tour that I managed to get onto, which you, you're sort of there as a participant who 
isn't really setting the agenda of where you're traveling. So Japan, Indonesia, New Zealand and Australia, I spent between five to seven or eight days in each country and you were sort of told where to go and who to visit. So I wasn't purely there to look at that sort of relationship as such with, with farming. That's the next stage. I'm actually off to Africa in a few days. That's when I'll be doing more focus on my topic. But what I can tell you about some of the things that I found particularly interesting as part of what was called the Global Focus Program was that um, when I was in New Zealand and so that was really at the start of the trip I was in New Zealand and there was lots of conversations particularly around water scarcity and just something I'm not used to coming from the UK we have such high level of rainfall and there was huge conversations around irrigation systems and some of the big dairy farms in the country plains of New Zealand so we had lots of conversations about the kind of political tensions there around farming and runoff into into water sources and, and how that was playing out a little bit on the anti-farming agenda a wee bit and then moving on to Japan particularly so interesting because they don't really have a big environmental lobby or movement happening over there which is very different to what I've experienced elsewhere that the focus from the government is particularly on food security so for example they're really trying to increase wheat production so a lot of money is being thrown at wheat production and, and the, the government really incentivized areas where they really want to increase self-sufficiency, which was particularly interesting because they're really interesting. And it was fascinating because I'd go to dairy farms or beef farms and there I'd ask about, you know, are you trying to reduce fertilizers on your farm, reduce fossil fuel usage? And the there was nothing really, there was no conversation, no narrative around that, which is what I'm hearing everywhere else, because like I say, everything was food security. And this really filtered down to the kind of consumers having a relationship with produce too, and really craving and willing to put money into seasonal produce. So there is one example I'll give you is I visited a melon farm in Hokkaido and the guy I visited there who's actually known as the melon man and he had these um he was selling this amazing story around local produce seasonal produce and he was commanding such an amazing return for his produce so I think it was something like $50 a melon that he was selling and I, I don't have the exact figures on me but I think for around three hectares he was turning over like 1.5 million dollars which when you look at the kind of value added side of things, because Japan is interesting because everything is small parcels of land. You don't have these, you know, what you might be more used to in the US, we're used to in parts of England where you have, you know, hundreds, thousands of hectares or acres, everything's little pockets, but they make so much money on that and they really control the story, the marketing, and they make more money for their produce. So all these things were fascinating. And if we then relate that back to my topic, you know, there's that connection, that understanding more of an agriculture, the support from the government really wanting to put money behind that drive for food security. So very interesting. It really is. Yeah. And, and it, it brings up there's two very important questions I, I've just been dying to ask you, and, and here's one of them, and then we'll get to the next one, which is when we talk about public perception of agriculture and sort of this anti-farming agenda, et cetera, we have these stories like that that are very aesthetically pleasing, right? Super high quality fruit or where you came from, you know, very picturesque agriculture, very pastoral, very green, uh, very beautiful. That's the way I think most of the public wants to think about where their food comes from. And in some contexts, that's that's reality. That is exactly where their food comes from. If you're farming, maybe in the UK as one example um, or in Japan as another. How do you have that conversation conversation 
about some of the agricultural systems that are less aesthetically pleasing. I used to live in Western Kansas. It's never going to look like the UK. It is flat. It is dry. It is dusty. Uh, it is brown. How do you kind of give people both a realistic vision of agriculture, but also uh, one that they can digest, to use a bad pun? <laughs> You know, it's it's a really good question and it's still something that I am developing my response to and I'm sure it will change as as I travel to different places like the like the one that you're depicting in Kansas there. And the reality is with the public, they want to be sold this idea of rolling green grass and, you know, all animals outdoors and grazing and Unfortunately, when we don't see that, the media often can, you know, interpret that as quite a negative thing too. And I've been asked about this a lot recently in some of the TV interviews that I've done. And I try to make the point that, you know, for example, the UK, you mentioned there, yes, we do have some of these fantastic climate. We can have some of the things that you couldn't have in other parts of the world, but we are feeding ourselves in this country. We're able to um, have self-sufficiency, but we're not contributing to global malnutrition or distribution of food to those that need it. And I always try and throw it back to the fact, you know, we can criticize and we can have this idea, but we've also got to remember that to have energy, to have food, we've got to produce also at scale and to have affordability and accessibility for all. So it can't always be this picturesque, fantastic example. And even if suddenly, you know, we were to change everything over to non-animal produce, you mean there's the energy requirements of that, the land, you know, some of the resources involved with that. It's trying to explain to people to be maybe slightly more realistic and saying, you know, we can't have everything, but farmers actually celebrating what they are doing, which is contributing to global food security. So when when people often are quite negative about Brazil, for example, one of my really good friends, she's a beef farmer over there. And she can get quite you know upset about that because the deforestation headlines that we see around that as well. But then when you actually look at where she's exporting her beef and where it's going and how many people it's feeding, you know, the social impact that that is having, the economic impact as well, you know, trying to paint that message to people as well, that there's more than just this environmental lens. I think we have to partner that with we are trying to adapt our practices to be more sustainable. And this is what farmers are doing. We all could do a lot more, but it's about not looking at everything just through these silos, but actually seeing the wider benefits that that food can have. And I mean, obviously there I mentioned about food security, but also social impact in rural communities, sustaining primary schools and um, like local amenities. People don't always realize how critical some of your farms are in terms of local employment opportunities and actually trying to paint this more holistic, this circular picture, sorry, of the different things that farming can contribute to. But um, I can't really provide you an answer with the aesthetic side of it because that is going to be hard. But it's more about actually trying to step outside and see the wider impact of it. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I, I felt the same, you know, temptation, like, let's focus on all the good things uh, about agriculture, the pleasing things that people would want to know and want to hear. Uh, but then I always find myself wondering in the back of my mind, like, but, you know, how much should we focus on? Here's the realistic picture, even though you don't want to see this, you don't want to experience this, uh, but you should know about it versus like, here, I'll, I'll feed the narrative you want to you want to have in your head. I, I think I could see both being damaging in their own way. It's sort of the challenge of of us ag communicators, isn't it? It's a, it's a really interesting point. And I wrote an article in our, um, it's Scotland's biggest 
broadsheet papers called The Herald, and I'm a columnist for them. And one of the things I love about being a columnist for The Herald is that it's a it's a non-farming audience. And that's really, really important to me to get those messages out. But what I exactly along the lines of the question you just asked me, Tim, I think it was maybe just sort of mid-August, I, I sent a column in where I talked about this um, absolute obsession that we have with regenerative farming. And I'd been to a summer tour for a group in Scotland called um, Pasture for Life, where it's not regenerative, just regenerative. It's more about that all animals are grazed purely on pasture from start to end. And it was an amazing summer tour. It was really interesting. But what it got me thinking and it coming back to my topic is it's about this idea, you know, we've all jumped onto this idea that regen is fantastic. And obviously, we should all be wanting to regenerate our soils. And there's lots of really good messaging within there. But the thing that I warned in my column was that we don't want to be, you know, looking down on other people's practices. So just because I'm regen, that makes them degenerative. And that's the sort of narrative I want to move away from, this sort of us versus them narrative that is being created. Because, for example, if, we, if I give you what's happening in the UK, after the Second World War, farmers were literally paid to take out hedgerows. They were paid to farm right up to the edges of their fields. There would have been no buffer strips they would have been you know absolute maximizing yield because at that point it was all about food security so farmers incentivize to absolutely really over cultivate the soils have more higher stocking densities of their livestock but then you know we fast forward now and everybody's really focused on the the environmental the the nature agenda and farmers are really it's the opposite they're being told you've got to plant more hedgerows you've got to have buffer strips wildlife corridors you've got to really um, reinvigorate your soils put more organic matter in and it's like you can't suddenly expect everybody to be able to do that overnight. And if we start saying, you know, you're a terrible farmer, here's an example of a brilliant farmer, you're not going to encourage, incentivize or support that farmer on a journey to actually aim towards that. And I appreciate that there's an urgency that we need to think about tackling things quickly. Of course, we have to be swift about it, but we can't leave people behind. And language can be really, really damaging and actually stemming progress. So I think we need to be much more mindful about criticizing and pointing out other practices. But instead, how can we actually, you know, demonstrate and showcase in a way that brings people on board, but doesn't tell them that what they're doing is wrong and vilifying them in the process? Yeah. And I, I hear I hear this this issue with with regenerative a lot, which is, you know, you get well-intentioned people that say like, well, just look at this farm. You could tell this is the way things are supposed to be by looking at it. And it's like, well, I think your eyes could play tricks on you because right. Like my garden looks pretty good, too, but I'm not even like feeding myself a couple meals a year on my garden. Uh, and so it's not so much just about aesthetically pleasing, although certainly we can't ignore some of the realities with with modern agriculture is that there are issues. And, and I think that's another question. I wanted to ask you, Claire, which is how do you talk about some of the problems we do have in agriculture without being labeled having an anti-farming agenda? And that, that's something I struggle with, too, is like I want to talk about the opportunities and the problems, but uh, it can very quickly evolve, devolve to like, oh, you, you you're just, you know, you're anti-farming. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point and you'll get this and I, I get it quite a lot. And, and the way I sort of hit this straight head on is that whenever I'm asked questions, I anticipate if I'm being interviewed, um, especially if it's someone that doesn't know farming, I expect them to be quite openly critical of what I'm of what I'm doing and you know here's me speaking on behalf of farming so I'm always very wary of what I'm saying and I always I always start by saying do you know what farming has got a lot to improve on and I'll be really honest about it and I'll say you know like the example I gave just there we have been 
over-cultivating what we've been doing for, for years. However, I'm not blaming the farmers for that. It's it's policy. It's what they were being told to do by the government, you know, and they were just responding to another crisis, a crisis of food. And I always, I always am very honest about that when I say it, but then say, but here's the thing, farming is in the most perfect opportunity to actually respond where many other sectors can't because we've got land, we've got soil and we want to pass it on to the next generation and we want to do our bit and we've got the opportunity and, and the space to do so. So it's about saying, yes, on one hand, yes, farming has been part of the problem. It's been part of the contribution to greenhouse gas emissions because of often out with their control, they were asked to do that. They were incentivized to do that. But here's the thing, now they can swing that completely on its head and be part of this much bigger, more positive movement. And I just always think it's about the way you acknowledge it. And I don't get defensive. I don't really say, oh, no, no, farming's, you know, we, we can't call out farming. You know, you, you've got to be quite realistic. And actually, I've been doing that for quite a while now in my interviews. And so far, farmers have been really positive about me saying that because I have actually done a bit of a feedback and said to people, do you think I'm right to say this? And they've said, because of the way you've handled it, and then you've then turned it onto the opportunities, they've been good. The problem here, Tim, is when you're taken out of context, as you know, <laughs> that can be a problem. So you've always got to, whenever you're saying anything, you think, say it in, a, in enough of a snippet so if it gets cut, <laughs> you're still saying something you want to be heard. Yes. Well, yeah, you, you know that, I mean, both from working in media for years and, and from, you know, being the subject of, of so much media as well. So, yeah, I mean, it strikes me that while the title of your project, the turning the tide on the anti-farming agenda is is certainly provocative enough for people to want to know more, which I'm sure is part of the point there. What you're really talking about is like, how do we talk about these issues together, no matter where you're coming from? Like, how do we have productive conversations about it? You know, is that is that what you hope the the outcome of this work is? Or what are you hoping kind of years from now you can look back on this and like, OK, we really made progress in this area? Yeah, it, it's absolutely what you're saying, Tim. It's um. Yes, it was a provocative title. It's an emotional title. I'm a journalist. I knew it would get people talking. It's one of those sort of headlines, isn't it? But really, like you say, it's about having a conversation about how can we actually build more of a positive narrative moving forward. And I guess, what do I want to come out of this? So initially, when I started, my dream was to, um, so it has changed, but my dream was to come back to the UK. And instead of doing the usual Nuffield route, which is you go to a few conferences, you present your findings and you write a paper, which does get read by some people, but often like a lot of kind of policy papers gets put on the shelf. And I thought as a communicator, you know, that's not actually getting the messages out to the people that I want to be part of this change or whatever I'm building here. So I was hoping to do like a road trip around the UK and meet with farmers on the ground, have conversations about how they were communicating and engaging and to sort of, you know, Engage from them as well about you know how can they look to do more in themselves because I do think farmers are the they're the authentic advert for themselves you know I can be a communicator and talk about farmers and whenever I do I try to gather the ideas and be representative of farmers that I speak to but really you want it to be the farmers doing that so if I could sort of start a movement or a conversation where people are talking about different ways to communicate and coming together and bridging those sort of divides that would be my dream but now I've been traveling it's not just the UK I'm interested in I've I've suddenly realized you know I've been in an echo chamber for a long long time and I've had these sort of blinkered UK 
predominantly Scotland goggles on. And now I've had a bit of a taste for traveling and I have many, many months still to come. And I realized that, you know, farmers around the world, we're all facing the same challenges. Albeit, I mentioned New Zealand earlier, you know, and, and different countries like Australia, they might have more pressing issues with water than we might do in the UK. But, you know, whatever whatever might separate us in terms of our climates, we're still all part of the same challenges around climate and nature and also delivering on food security. So I, I, I think for me, I would love to do something which stops the finger pointing around the world. So every time I get asked from now on about, isn't the UK farming great, but how about the feedlots in the US? I'm going to challenge it. And I'm going to say, first of all, have you visited them? You know, they're there for a reason. Who are they feeding? What impact are they having? And just try and get people who are curious, like you say, you know, people, you know, your, your, your listeners are very curious. In general, the public are very curious and just ask them to think a little bit harder, not just to listen to the, the bias that they seek out in their, their, you know, their everyday reads or listens, but to actually question things. And that's something I'd really like to do is for myself is probably to just to have a bit more of a sort of global impact and have this conversation. But I'd really like farmers around the world to maybe be a bit more outward looking and to not be condemning or pointing fingers at other parts of the world, whether that's around trade or, or, or different things, and just to really build a much more unified conversation. And I guess practically, for me, I, I how would I actually do that? I would really, really love to start doing some documentaries. It's something I started on years ago. And it's something I you know, I'd be coming back to after many years, but I'm going to be traveling around the world and meeting amazing businesses. You know, I'm visiting six different continents, eight, nine months of travel. The stories and the people that I'm going to be meeting are going to be so interesting. I want to share that. And there's so many documentaries right now around like Regen, they're around slightly more trendy documentaries where I'd like to actually look at more practical and we've got to feed people but how do we do that in a sustainable way but let's actually talk about feeding people and not just around all the kind of trends so that's how I'd love to do it that's that's in the future and whether that'll happen but that's what I'd love to do from this well before I let you go Claire just want to uh give you a chance if there's anything you want to either add on to the conversation or emphasize about what we talked about anything at all that we didn't get to or you want to uh, reiterate um, I want to give you the chance to do so gosh what would I say well I guess I've already commented on it a little bit but um when I started the the Nuffield process you know I delayed it and delayed it for a bit because I kept saying I was far too busy to do that and then I realized that every year I'm going to get busier and busier and actually taking time out to travel and to meet with different people, different cultures, different farming systems. It's just been the most incredible learning journey. And it's taught me a lot about myself, both personally, professionally. There's been a huge amount of change in my own life as a result of my Nuffield. And it's made me realize how much more there is out there and just to have that thirst for knowledge and that knowledge exchange, meeting new people. And it just gives you this incredibly different way of viewing the world and my mindset has utterly changed and you've probably heard some of that in today's podcast not everybody I realize can do that I mean I'm incredibly privileged incredibly lucky that I've been able to step away and I've made a lot of big choices and changes to allow myself to do that but um, I still think we can all still benefit from moving outside our immediate farming circles and whether that's going to a different state in, in North America or whether it's, you know, just taking time off the farm, speaking to different people, non-farmers. It's just so important 
to have your mindset like widened and challenged. I mean, challenge is so good. It's taught me that I'm a bit of a people pleaser and I want everything to be nice and good. But actually, it's okay to be challenged and scrutinize and to look differently at what you're doing. And I think as farmers, we probably all need that as well. We probably all need to be asked difficult questions and to make big changes as a result. So I've done that as um, through my Nuffield and now it's filtered into my work, my life decisions and choices. And I just think there's something really special about just looking at things very differently. All right. Well, that's going to do it for today's featured interview. What do you think? I'm curious. Well, do you think that there's a anti-farming agenda out there? And if so... What do you think needs to be done to turn the tide on that? I know I'd love to hear from you. I bet also Claire would love to hear your answers as well. Um, I'm always open on Twitter at Tim Hamrich or the contact form on the website, which is just futureofagriculture.com. Thank you very much again to Claire Taylor for being on the show today and best of luck to her as she continues her travels and ultimately starts making those documentaries that she talked about in today's interview. Uh, we've had other Nuffield scholars on the show, and I'm always intrigued to hear their global perspectives on the future of agriculture. Next, I'm very pleased to share a spotlight segment with you featuring farmer and vice chair of the United Soybean Board, Steve Reinhardt. Steve farms soybeans, corn, wheat, hay, and malting barley in north central Ohio. Uh, he shared with me one cool aspect of sustainability on his farm is his ability to double crop soybeans after barley. So with modern varieties of short season soybeans, Steve is able to harvest his barley at a normal time, then plant no-till soybeans right into that barley stubble. So he's actually getting two crops crops from the very same acreage in the same year with little added nutrition. You'll hear of other farmers doing this with wheat as well as barley, where they can harvest it early enough to still get a crop of soybeans in. I think it's one really overlooked aspect to the sustainability story, so I wanted to share that with you before turning things over to Steve, who's going to provide some additional reasons of why soybeans are such an important part of his rotation. You know, it used to be everybody liked to uh raise corn because it was easy to go out there and plant. That was usually the first crop you planted. And we saw some bigger increases in yields over the, the years and uh, better tolerance to maybe some diseases and things. And But I think we uh, have in the last 10 years really seen the soybean plant kind of do that same thing. We're, we're looking at over a half a bushel uh, yield increase over year over year. And there can be some years where we see, you know, really huge uh, swings in yield and we're starting to learn that variety selection plays a big role in that. We're learning that, uh, you know, making sure that we have the nutrient uh, content right in the soil plays a big role. Uh, something as simple as planting date. Uh, used to be we planted all of our corn first, and, and now we actually start with soybeans, and we'll have half of the soybeans planted before we go back and, and start the corn crop. So it's really been a, a steep learning curve, I think, over the last 10 years that you know, we've seen a lot of advances, uh, a lot of technology. We take, uh, you know, programs from the SOI checkoff and fund research with universities and, you know, how can we get a better grasp on some of the different diseases we see and uh, what products uh, maybe work and, and uh, you know, how much uh, of an economic liability are some of the diseases we see. We know we've had cyst nematode for a long time, but until the universities, uh, actually started putting numbers to it and show that it could be robbing us of uh, 20 or 30 bushel per acre in heavy infestation has it really brought it to the forefront where that's maybe something that we need to you know consider as growers how can we counteract some of those negative effects of the cyst nematode mm -hmm. 
And so is that something where, where it's, it's had those impacts for a long time? They were just kind of going unnoticed or at least the impact wasn't expected to be that severe? Well, I think it's one of those things that over the last uh, few years, we know we've had it, but but uh, we've not really done a lot to measure, you know, what the infestation levels are. And and we still have some places where we don't have, uh, you know, a lot of cyst nematode, but uh, it's just one of those things where if we do have it, it's it's something we need to plan for and, and kind of protect against. And and we've been able to do, uh, you know, take checkoff dollars and do a lot of that uh, research and kind of put those numbers, you know, to the negative uh, impact of the, the cyst nematode and uh, what that can, can lead to. Uh, not only do you have the cyst nematode attacking the, the root system of the plant, but when it does that, it also allows other viruses to uh, attack the plant as well. So you could have compounded issues there. And, and that's only one of the things. I mean, we know we have charcoal rot now uh, creeping into Ohio that we've not seen before. And that's always kind of been more of a Southern, you know, type of disease they've had to look at. And, but that's one where we can now take our North Central Research Group, which we fund part of that through the United Soybean Board, and we can work with our group in the South and they get funding from United Soybean Board and now they can work back together and uh, we don't have to recreate all that, uh, you know, research because we now have a coordinated effort to try to bring that research together and, and share those results. And so one of the newest uh, things that we also are, are looking at now is, you know, where are we in the uh, area of biologicals? Uh, biologicals seem to be the new thing that everybody's looking at and uh, how can we use again, less inputs uh, and use something that's maybe naturally occurring to our benefit and use those uh, to increase our yield or maybe decrease some of our other inputs that we use. And again, it looks at, uh, you know, how we can return value back to the farmers. And, you know, another thing now we're looking at soybean uh, research dollars and how we can best spend those. And we look at something like the high lake soybean and we uh, talk about the whole bean you know, and, and what we uh, uh, want to do with the whole bean, well, we have basically two parts of the bean. You have the meal and the, the oil, and uh, hyaleic gives us an opportunity to really kind of uh, recapture some of that cooking uh, market share that we've lost in the cooking arena uh, by having that healthy hyaleic oil. And, and then we also know it's got great uh, qualities for industrial aspects as well. So as we continue to try to grow out the hyaleic uh, soybean uh, production you know we have uh, good benefits then from the meal composition as well and and uh, we know animal agriculture of course is still one of our biggest customers and whatever we can do on the meal side of that whole soybean also goes to great uh, benefit our partners in the uh, animal production world absolutely yeah, no, uh, you got a, a lot going on. Uh, I mean, in your role with United Soybean Board, obviously what you're talking about on the research side and funding efforts to make farmers more successful and profitable and, and resilient in their production. Uh, but it also kind of it hinges on this last part you were just talking about, which is the demand, right? And soybeans are... Uh, pretty amazing in how many different products they end up in. So you just talked about the hyaleic, which is obviously an important part of the story there. But uh, what other kind of uses for soybeans are you excited about going forward? Or maybe that your eyes were opened when you got more involved with the soybean board? Well, it's pretty interesting. I guess I got involved in a pretty good time. And, and that was uh, right around the late uh, 2000s. And 
because that's when some of the really the neat projects uh, involving oil and, and meal are kind of getting started. And so, you know, we talk about, of course, another big use of the oil is bio, you know, based diesel fuel. And uh, that's going to continue, I think, to, to grow in the future as we look to maybe how we can incorporate that into sustainable aviation fuel and how we can maybe get that into uh, the eastern United States in the form of bioheat through uh, heating oil. and But then we go on to so many other things that you never thought about. Uh, Goodyear uh, has several tire uh, lines now that include soybean oil and, you know, anywhere from the, the Ford Explorer that a lot of the, you know, municipalities use for uh, patrolling our streets. Uh, we have a tire that can basically work on that Ford uh, Explorer. And then we also have the big tires. They come out now with uh, the fire trucks and the trash trucks can run on those same tires that include soybean oil. And, and we're continuing to work with Goodyear. And uh, I think their goal is to have uh, sustainably produced oil in their tires uh, as soon as 2040, which really is not a, a long time from now. And uh, so they're continuing to work on sidewalls and other parts of the tire as well. And, you know, we have uh, fabrics, personal care items. So I think continuing to work, look into that human uh, aspect is, you know, what can we do as far as uh, maybe it'd be a protein source and food. Uh, we go beyond poultry and pork and uh, we look at uh, tofu and tempeh and uh, some of those products that we don't consider to be, you know, protein sources today in our, our diet here in America, but they are popular around other parts of the world. And then how can we get into uh, <clears throat> more items into the personal care space, which I think would be a, a great thing for us to do. And again, drive that value back to the farmer. And it's just amazing how many things, if, if you can sit back and, and look at something, I mean, we, we think we have a solution, uh, a sustainable soy solution to every life every day. And so that every day, you know, you're going to touch something in your life that uh, it probably re revolves around soybean or, or some uh, aspect of soybean has been involved in the production of that product. And uh, that, that, that really becomes amazing when we think about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like they always talk about, you know, if you're a food company, you're trying to get that grocery store shelf space. And once you have it, you know, you kind of fight to keep it. But once you have it, you've got that that sort of distribution, sort of the same way with all these uses of soybean. Right. You've you sort of got the market established for you in your role with the United Soybean Board. Do you ever worry about like, oh, gosh, how are we going to continue to grow? Where do we go next? Because we're already in so many different places. Well, and that's been an interesting uh, thing because we had a, a strategic plan launch a couple of years ago. And uh, with our new strategic plan, we were looking at, uh, you know, infrastructure and connectivity. And, and we talk about uh, all these new uses and, and things like that. And then we, we go back and say, well, yeah, but we have an infrastructure, you know, we need to address and how can we, uh, you know, work on that at the same time. So, you know, we've done things on, on the West Coast with the Port of Grays Harbor and, and looking at uh, exporting soybean meal over to Southeast Asia. And uh, that's becoming a bigger market for us there. And then we look at, um, you know, the Mississippi River. There was a, a study we paid for on dredging the lower Mississippi and and uh, how that could be done. So we helped to design a, a program. And, and then they were able to secure other funding to go out and actually do the dredging uh, down to 50 feet. And how much, uh, I think it's like 14 cents, you know, a bushel. You know, and we're having low water levels the last couple of years on the Mississippi. So that's a very important thing that we were able to do. And 
you know, something that we, we use every day, we don't even think about it. Um, but how can we continue to maintain our advantage, uh, you know, with uh, moving our product throughout the country and uh, broadband connection? So many things we use on the farm today revolve around broadband and how can we work with uh, communities? We have a couple of experimental programs in Illinois. Uh, how can we bring that broadband out uh, to where the farmers in, the, in kind of some rural areas can really benefit and and be able to uh you know, take advantage of that technology and, and be able to send the things up to the cloud and, and receive information back in a, you know, pretty quick uh, uh, method. Well, a lot of uh, important infrastructure uh, items there. Um, I know we're getting close to time, but but Steve, anything else that you'd like to get on tape here? Uh, maybe a message to other soybean farmers out there about, you know, what you're seeing from your vantage point with the United Soybean Board. Well, I think, uh, you know, there's there's a couple things there. We're working on food security and sustainable energy. And those are, uh, you know, two things that we think soy is going to play a, a big role in. And uh, it's very versatile and we have uh, consistent, uh, constant innovation. And we're working to maintain our sustainability profile, which we know when we uh, look at our younger generations, they're considering that more. We know that European and Asia markets are considering that more. We're in Vietnam a couple of weeks ago, and I, I can't uh, get over the fact of how they were talking about sustainability, something that I, you know, never thought that Vietnam and, and uh, yeah, some of those places would be worried about that at this point in time, and it's becoming a, a bigger thing. And then just making sure that the growers know that when they pay into the checkoff, we're, you know, trying to make sure that we can maintain that reliable supply and uh, make sure that we can consistently, you know, provide the food, feed, and fuel to the different markets that we need to uh, address. All right. Well, that is going to do it for today's episode. Thank you very much to Steve Reinhardt for sharing his soy story with us for today's Spotlight segment. Thanks as well to Claire Taylor for being on the show today. I'd also like to thank the Soy Checkoff one more time for supporting Ag Innovation and this podcast as our quarterly presenting sponsor. And last but certainly not least, thank you for your time and your attention. I don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of Ag Innovation. Ag Innovation.